in the beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. I've got a couple of guests in the studio with me. You'll want to bring that microphone close to you. Yes. Hello. Hello. So, that's Leo. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Um, I don't know your last name. Zimmerman. Z Leo Zimmerman, uh-huh. And Iris Kirsch. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. So, this is actually the first time that either of you have been on my show. Right. Iris, you've been on Carla's show a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've spoken with you over the phone a couple of times yeah. on Carla's show, but I've we've never met before. Right. It's so very nice to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And Leo, you were on one of Carla's shows relatively recently for about five or ten minutes we had called in from the campus of johns hopkins university and we were talking with some of iris's students there and i asked for a, a second to jump in and talk about some some background on the university itself mm -hmm. and you ended up mentioning something else that that we share in common that s some historical information or or knowing that that uh I wonder who could be calling this early in the show. Let's find out. So you're on the air. Welcome. Oh. Somebody didn't really want to be on. They weren't feeling it. No. That's good. We didn't want them anyway. <laughs> we had so um, yeah. I don't. I don't know where we want to go this morning. Have Have either of you thought about, or is is there anything percolating inside either of you that that you're just ready to to talk about? I mean, there's so many potential directions, but yeah. Um. So I, um, I'm, we're here because I'm finished my master's degree and what I wrote about is teacher autonomy. And I was thinking last night when I couldn't sleep about, um, what Leo does research into and what I've gained from my relationship with him, um, which is often um, how the the systems that operate around us present the world to us in a way that allows us to feel like we have autonomy and feel like we're making our own decisions um, when we really have very limited information and can't make like informed consent decisions. Um, so the tension between autonomy and control for the intelligent, supposedly free population of the country and the world, uh, I think is something we could probably talk about for like literally days. <laughs> <laughs> given the opportunity. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the uh, 
the obvious uh, sadness of that. Yeah. But first off, congratulations on graduating. Thanks. That's a big thing. So yeah, let's let's go there and also explore some of your, I mean, Leo's <laughs> background and what you've been studying and what you've been learning about. And it sounds like they're both very connected. And I have a lot of interest in that myself. I've been very interested in all of that for all of my adult and even pre-adult mm-hmm. life as I grew up in a pretty insane world observing the adults around me. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I actually spent more time with adults than kids because my parents never left me with babysitters. They always took me around with them. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to experience the joys and insanities of of society. Which is more like how they said it was back in the the 18th century when the children grew up and became part of the adult world faster as Mm -hmm. a result of that. Mm -hmm. So I got to experience really creative, wonderful, and also a lot of crazy, bizarre people. And I was too young to really make any sense of any of it. Mm-hmm. All I could do was take it in. Where did you grow up? New York City. Oh, okay. Where did you guys grow up? <clears throat> I grew up outside of New York City in Austin. Outside of Boston. Outside of Boston. Uh-huh. So let's get into this topic of teaching and autonomy and 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 all of that so where where do you think is is the where would you like to begin how did you how did you how did you become aware of that that issue iris uh well i think i've always um really like always since i was a very very small child valued autonomy um which is to say, like, my ability and the ability of others to determine our own destiny is in the immediate and broader senses. Um, And I loved school in a lot of ways, and I also experienced it as wildly absurd (laughs) um, because some of the things that I was expected to do were, like, learn. And that was amazing. And I loved to learn and explore ideas. And a lot of what I was expected to do was like conform and comply. And that just obviously was antithetical to learning. And um, and so, you know, as I, by third grade, I knew I wanted to teach. And so as I progressed through elementary and middle and high school, I looked at my teachers critically as people who I might emulate or not. Um, And it wasn't until I'd been, and then 
I had a quarter life crisis at 19 and was like, I don't know if I want to teach. I should be a hairdresser. Um, and you know, I should earn my living and whatever. Um, and realized in my time away from school when I actually had time to study and read, um, I realized that I was an anarchist and I did some reading in that and found my people. And, um, when I did end up teaching, um, I started to notice some of these tensions and then, but I, I, I thought it was easier than it actually is. I thought, well, if you just say, this is what I want to do, like, for example, um, bringing the community and the school together seems like an obviously good thing, right? Community schools, it sounds perfect, you know, if you really think about it. And then it wasn't until I met Leo and got the benefit of his critical research skills that um, I started to realize, well, community schools is a notion that has now been co-opted and has been defined by a set of people that I've never met, I have no access to, and it's become this kind of prepackaged forced choice that sounds obvious and a lot of people might choose seemingly autonomously but they would then be kind of agreeing to a set of assumptions that they didn't they hadn't made et cetera et cetera so yeah that that stimulated a few thoughts in my mind and also I just want to say invite you Leo to interject at any point and even ask questions I mean don't look at me as being like the 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 director or or the interrogator that all of you can play those roles in this I mean this is a free equal um, exchange here thank you well I think there is there is a good story also about Iris's autonomy as a teacher, which she might choose to tell or not, or we're welcome to tell anything. But the, the, it's kind of the centerpiece of your of your thesis in a way about the books. Oh, okay. You don't have to tell it though. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I might later, but okay. okay. Before you do that, I just want to say that I love that you use the term anarchist, that you identified yourself as an anarchist, and also what you were saying before reminded me of this notion that while in school, while all this, there's all this lip service to learning, and never once did any of the teachers I ever had ever ask me what I was interested in learning mm. myself, mm -hmm. while they were busily stuffing mm -hmm. information into me or trying mm. to get me to, to take it in and buy into this right. notion of education that they were basically selling. Right. But going back to the anarchist thing, I also identify as an anarchist, but I think there's a tremendous misunderstanding of that term oh, yeah. in, our, in our society, in our culture. So perhaps... We could 
briefly or or maybe not that briefly <laughs> define that <clears throat> that concept and and what it is to be an anarchist and what that means because you're a teacher you're someone who who loves learning mm-hmm. loves education loves kids I'm loves, also on the government's people. payroll <laughs> <laughs> Really Yeah I mean I'm pay, I'm a public, te- school, public teacher. school teacher right So I right. literally my stuff is state retirement plan wow. <laughs> so it's which which again which reminds me of of one of these books that's that I actually never read but is there somewhere in my in my collective mm-hmm. memory um, Neil Postman's teaching as a subversive activity. Mm-hmm. So I can't say any more about that because I didn't read it. Right. But but the title, I just love the title. As soon as I read that title, I was like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's like kind of defines my orientation to life mm-hmm. in many ways. And it it connects with anarchy as well. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess um, in my understanding, anarchism means self-control and community control. Maybe we shouldn't even use community because it means like shared walls. And I don't think... Or even the term control is... I think I, I've used the word self-responsibility. Okay. All right. Because control has, I think con- the word control has so many other kind of yeah. tainted. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It doesn't things. mean like giving in to the cops in your head. Right. Or, it means- or, or, or controlling others. Right. It's, yeah. it's actually the opposite. Yeah. I would say. <clears throat> so respecting res- other people's free will. Right. Perhaps. Yeah. And taking, and responsibility is not taking responsibility for others it's taking responsibility for ourselves and our own ability to to respond to things and our our own and the way we respond to things and which is a continually evolving thing in the no, getting back to the notion of education and learning mm-hmm. that if we're really devoted to learning and education this is a continual ongoing process moment by moment by moment and that continuing process or experience or commitment to taking responsibility for ourselves and and what we're creating in the world that has to evolve with that I mean everything evolves with that and and in order for us to stay up you know continue along with that to stay present with that and keep up with it we have it takes a lot of work oh yeah um and I would add that I think that um, I think there is an element of taking responsibility for others. Um, a friend of mine was uh, was held up um, a couple months ago. Actually, yeah, I'm not going to give too many details because it's not my story to share. But he was held up at gunpoint, and um, his wallet was taken, and some money was taken. And um, he came to me and he said, don't you know something about restorative justice? <laughs> because and what he eventually came around to is that right now he's really angry at these 
young people. He thinks that they will be caught. Um, he doesn't want to send them through the criminal justice system. But as he said to me, if there was an option of no consequence or jail, he'd rather they go to jail because he has suffered a consequence and he feels like they should have some consequence. And I understand that. I understand the like the sentiment behind that. Um, and our society, our capitalistic democracy is very transactive and says, well, if I have suffered an injury, then you should suffer an injury. And I don't really have to take responsibility for what that's going to do to you. Um, and my friend is not trying to be that. But that's he's soaked in that, and he's he's defining two extreme options, right? As yeah. if that's it. Yeah. Well, he he was looking for other options, mm-hmm. but what he when I presented some other options that I, I mean I don't even like calling it restorative justice, restorative practices, because justice is this scale thing, and and I'm not I'm not trying to weigh anybody. I love that. Um, and. And in my mind, these, what, I don't know the young men that did this to him, but I'm sure that they have already suffered. They wouldn't have done that if they hadn't already suffered. Putting them through more suffering doesn't seem like it's going to solve anybody's problems. So to me, to my mind, taking responsibility for them means bringing them, hugging them, not literally physically, maybe literally physically, but bringing them into our lives, showing them this is a human being who you took something from. You don't just take his money. You also took some of his sense of security in the world. This is the organization that he was working for that the money belonged to. You want to volunteer for that organization, but you don't have to because it's not a punishment. But you, we would want you to come to a meeting and see what this organization is doing. And then if you feel like volunteering, well, that would be awesome. And maybe you'll meet somebody there who wants to mentor you. Maybe you won't. We're not going to push that. To me, that's taking responsibility. That's anarchism. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and if anybody in the listening audience would prefer to read a novel, a really engaging novel, than some like hundred year old theory, um, a friend of mine, Margaret Kiljoy, writes very engaging fiction and wrote a novel called A Country of Ghosts, um, which is a fictional story of a journalist from a capitalist country who ends up in an imaginary anarchist country reporting on a war and gets some, I don't remember how, but sort of gets stuck there and ends up like learning about and understanding how they interact and how the anarchist society functions. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful way of sh- demonstrating our ideals and Margaret's ideals are very close to mine. I love that you, you mentioned that the, the perpetrator of that, that the, the stealing of, of that 
person's wallet was also suffering, that they had to have suffered in order to do something like that to another person. And I think, and I love that you're bringing in that added dimension of responsibility has to include every everything and everybody around us that because we are so totally interconnected Mm -hmm. and interdependent upon each other Mm -hmm. that's what community is about that's what human community is about and it's so not only important but it's also so beautiful to recognize that and and at the same time it's it's important to to recognize how all the the pain and the suffering and the darkness that also exists in that that part of understanding our yeah could you talk about more cuz you're i'm i'm now living in vermont and i've been living here for 20 years now so i've been pretty mm-hmm. insulated from the you live in baltimore and mm-hmm. you teach in the baltimore school system mm-hmm. and you're you have much more of a daily connection and exposure to what could be called you know what's going on in the quote unquote real world the more nitty gritty so I would love for you to talk more about that dynamic of of being aware of other people's suffering that drives them to act in ways that not only hurt other people but but also hurt themselves in the context of in which they they're part of their their own communities but at, but they're probably not aware of that but people like you and us we are more aware of that and becoming more so all the time and i think it happens everywhere i'm sure it happens here oh, it def- and i'm definitely sure it happens well. in different ways yeah. like for example if you have somebody who has had a business in a rural community for a long time and the economy is tanked and all kinds of crazy stuff is going on, they may have to make decisions, you know, sourcing things less ethically, laying somebody off. And those are acceptable decisions in our society, but they're no less hurtful than robbing somebody for $800. In fact, they're probably more hurtful. Um in the long run, you know, if somebody makes $200 a week working at your shop, then in a month you've robbed them of $800 if you let them go. Um, so I um, I want to be careful of othering people. And, um, Leo, do you want to talk about um, how Baltimore is kind of socialist and mm. makes, like people rely on the system i don't know maybe you could talk about that better but i will say how much i love the place yeah i i moved here simply because i like the people there and i think there's so much wisdom there that you experience just by living and walking around and interacting with people talk more about that please uh it gets into a mystical Dimension, where and also tell tell <laughs> stories if that would help. Help us help us connect to some of your experience of that. Whatever it takes. It just seems to me that you can that you can walk around Baltimore with an open mind, mm-hmm. and the the person will ap- appear often an elder who will 
give you the the wisdom or the direction that you need at that exact time through some it's it's like living in a, a fairy tale or something <laughs> really do you experience that iris yeah i'm i'm leo is has a more beautifully open mind than almost anyone i've ever met and so he is better at holding that space but um i think that to kind of bring it back uh to where we started the school system is so incomparably broken and has been for such a long time that there are an awful lot of people whose minds are not particularly tainted by it. And they've done a lot of reading and writing and listening and speaking and thinking on all kinds of interesting topics, different parts of history, astronomy, um, oh, incredible engineering and mechanical knowledge, knowledge of people, understanding of people, travel sometimes through the military. Um, and it's not clouded with the kind of forced choices that you hear on NPR, <laughs> forgive me, Um it's really just like, uh, this is what I have seen and this is what the people I've talked to have said. And so you could say it's, uh, it's narrower. Many people know about fewer things, but they know a lot more about the things that they know about and, and have a much deeper understanding than I think even a lot of people with like a PhD in something because get the process of getting a PhD in something means basically reading a bunch of other people's ideas and then fitting your experience into like statistical. It, it's just, um, it's really different than maintaining your own sense of intellectual curiosity relegating a certain distaste of, you know, school to one part of your life. Um, and sort of it's in the, it's in the same boat as any kind of bureaucracy. Um, and then you get to keep wondering about the world unfettered. And that's not everybody. There's plenty of people in Baltimore who really completely try to get A's and therefore give up a lot of their creative autonomy and become bureaucrats. There's so much bureaucracy in Baltimore. Um, and a lot of the middle management is homegrown, you know. But then there's this whole other, there's way more people than than Social Security can... Um, employ <laughs> even at like 40,000 right that's true too right um so yeah there is this kind of very beautiful reality so okay so it's socialist socialist because there's a lot of people drawing checks regularly and they have just enough to get by but not enough to build something for themselves buy land or you know or or do something 
fulfilling. Or even eat healthfully. That's right. That's true, too. The, they, they get food stamps, but then they have to spend them on corn syrup. Groceries are more expensive in Baltimore than a lot of other places. Utilities are more expensive than a lot of other places because um, like so many people are on food stamps and energy assistance. So it's like by design, they make these things unattainably expensive and then offer lots of public dollars. So we're just giving state money to Baltimore Gas and Electric and Walmart grocery section. And property owners. And property owners, right. That's right, yeah. So, you know, people people complain about the the black pit of money that Baltimore is in the state of Maryland, and it's true, but actually it's it's like the third world anywhere. You know, when we're giving away all this money to Indonesia, it's not going into the pockets of most of the Indonesians. Yeah. And similar to a lot of other places, um, there's been a long history of redlining and specifically I don't know what Leo said about Hopkins when he was on that other time but that was on ethereal anyway um uh Hopkins has had like three separate iterations of a very focused campaign to select neighborhoods that they want to expand into buy a few houses while the neighborhood is thriving, let those disintegrate, let those houses be vacant and, you know, draw rats and mold and unsavory activity, drive the property values down and then buy more and more houses until sometimes there's a whole block with one grandmother living in the middle of it and everything else is vacant. Um, and then they can eminent domain. Um, it doesn't have to wait till there's just one grandma left. They can take a lot of people's homes that way. They can give them a very little. These homes are the life savings of black Americans. It's almost all in black neighborhoods, middle-class black neighborhoods. And um, so it's it's very easy to look at Baltimore and say, well, if this family has been here for five generations and they haven't accrued any wealth, then they must be really lazy. They must not be trying. They must be squandering their money, whatever assumptions. But in fact, they may have bought a house and had it essentially stolen from them. Um, and then, as Leo's saying, they get put on this public till that doesn't allow any kind of savings or forward progression or really even healthy habits. Or thriving. Right, yeah. It's, me, it's Barely survival. Live, right. It's just survival right. with no room for, for thriving. Yeah. Not to mention the, the family dynamics where there's... Uh, there's money for women who don't have a, a husband mm-hmm. or a man in the house. Mm-hmm. And that's been known to be destructive to family life since 50 years ago, since the Moynihan report exposed all of that. And yet it's still in effect. I remember many years ago coming to this realization that this was all 
put into place by design. Mm-hmm. That it was actually meant that, and I, I've heard other people talk about this, how after, well, it started after the Civil War and it started after freeing of the slaves, that it was a way of kind of vindictively maintaining this this kind of overarching control of the black community and keeping them down no matter what, making yeah. sure that no matter how any anybody in the black community was able to adapt to the white elite system and succeed, that there would always be so many obstacles put in their place, strategically put in ways that nobody would ever suspect right. that they were deliberately placed there to do this but that that there would just be this like like in in a hurdles race where you have to jump over all these hurdles it's very much like that there's a whole sequence of hurdles Mm -hmm. that a person of color would have to overcome in order just to be at square one for a white person. And it doesn't prevent individual people, well, it doesn't prevent all, individual people of color and specifically black people from becoming successful. But it very definitively keeps it as a a rat race, you know? As like, well, if I'm going to make it, then I have to cut ties with some of my family. I won't, you know... Um, move away. Uh, and so it, while it, there's lots of shining examples of very successful black Americans that people can point to to say, oh, look, um, Tonio's wrong. There's not, this, this, this is not happening. Look at this guy. Look at this Um and people can then use those to say, well, if everybody had just worked as hard, I'm going to say Vance Benton. Vance Benton is my principal in pa- at Patterson in, in Baltimore. And he wrote a book called I Made It. And he did. He's, an, he's a real shining example. He's an amazing guy. He grew up in Cleveland. He worked really, really hard through a lot of struggles. And now he's doing very well for himself as a principal in Baltimore. But he knows... That he didn't just make it because if everybody worked hard enough, they could do it and everybody else is lazy. He has a really strong social um, analysis and understands that the odds are stacked against the black kids at our school in different ways than they're stacked against the immigrant kids and different ways than they're stacked against the poor white kids. Um, So I think it's important to say that, you know, it's not the case that people can't overcome those hurdles, but that it doesn't lift the community. It doesn't lift all of black America. Um, Yeah. Tonyo, what would you call an entity that would deliberately engineer a situation like that? (laughs) Well, there's, there's a lot of possible terms, but the first one that came to mind and I kind of recoil when I think of it, but it's the term evil. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah, that's what came to my mind, too. And I have 
grow, growing up in, in New York City and observing the dynamics, even when I was young, because I left New York City at around the age of 11, I, I was somehow aware of this, even at that age, yeah. to some degree. I didn't have much of an understanding of it, but I was aware of it, and there was this this feeling of of connection to that dark hole inside myself that I was experiencing in relation to that and observing that and we're we're living in a world that's still dominated by those people right because capitalism is designed to preference that and it doesn't really matter i mean there's there's a little bit of a difference but there's not a tremendous difference between republicans or democrats in that way yeah democrats nowadays have swung so far to the right that what's considered centrist is what used to be considered the right, I think. Mm -hmm. And our perspectives are, it have been shifting so slowly and gradually. We've been conditioned to accept things and and to accept this, this slow, gradual shifting and and all of this occurring at a time when, when I think many of us thought and felt that we were making so much progress. So while it appeared that we were making this forward progress, it was like this, those, those walkways, those, mm-hmm. those motorized walkways yeah. that you sent going in the opposite direction at the same time so that we had this illusion that we were moving forward uh-huh. while actually we were actually going Being backward. Being pulled backwards. Or maybe both at the same time. And so, yeah, go ahead. To a, to a good degree, the role of the politicians is to create or set a model for what people are supposed to say and think. And so what the politicians dispute between each other is what the people will dispute among each other, whether it's a scandal and intrigue uh, regarding the, the president or a, a famous person, or whether it's a political issue that's considered very controversial and divisive. And the things that you don't talk about are the things that they all agree on, such as there should be a permanent U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, such as... Colombia. Colombia. Let alone, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the pesticide corn, <laughs> the subsidies for pesticide corn. And then something you don't even hear about anymore is the, the tons and tons of cocaine and heroin that come in with great regularity. It's- and well, I just, so I just want to also say, like, I don't know what left and right mean anymore because socialism theoretically is pretty far to the left. Um, but more and more of what is agreed upon it, I mean, subsidies for corn is like kind of socialist. Oh, it is. Right. Corporate and, welfare. Yeah. Corporate welfare is a kind of socialism. And that's one of the things that's totally agreed upon. It's like a co-opting of socialist principles. Right. Yeah. 
which is so ironic because those same people are will instant will will jump down the throat and attack anything that could be perceived as socialist. So right. it's it's a game that yeah. they're playing. It's it's these weapons of mass distraction. Yep. And yeah, it's it's a it's a twisted game that that's being played. And going back to education, one of the things that everybody agrees on is accountability. You know, and you can't really argue that you want to hold teachers and schools accountable, but what they it's now taken as a given by many, many, many people in education and people with just like an armchair interest in education that the only way to assess whether schools are being you know, accountable to students is with standardized tests. And standardized tests are antithetical to learning. You know, you can teach... Uh, narrow set of skills and get somebody to pass a standardized test, you may teach the narrow set of skills and fill the student with so much anxiety that they still can't pass the test. The student may be too hungry to take the test, maybe have dealt with all kinds of issues. I think the focus of this residency at the Goddard EDU program is on trauma-informed educational practices, which again is is become a buzzword and become a forced choice. And, you know, I think it is incredibly deeply important that educators learn to understand what kind of baggage our students might come in with. But we don't want to just um, pigeonhole them or assume that everyone in our classes who looks a certain way or is from a certain socioeconomic class is dealing with the kinds of trauma that we've heard about, um, or get stuck in in a one size fits all approach to right. dealing with people right. who've experienced trauma because everybody's experience is completely unique right. to them. Um, but so all these factors are involved, and so people can say, "Oh, well, we're just trying to hold the schools accountable," but in fact, it seems so. I just don't believe that I'm smarter than everybody in the education department for the last 30 years. I just don't buy it. I really think, I mean, and Diane Ravitch looked at the data after the fact, after she'd been in the Bush administration and said, oh, actually, the stuff that we were doing had the opposite effect. But so why... It's just the race to the top completely built on no child left behind. Obama's policies completely continued, furthered the accountability and testing, which means huge sums of government money, tax money, going to private corporations to design and score tests and make intense online portals for data access. Um, often means that schools that haven't had any upgrades in 50 years are being rewired for Ethernet so that the students can take the tests at the same time on the computer. Um, It's this complete 
rotten set of priorities. Um, and I just don't believe that everyone is so stupid and well-meaning that they're just bumbling around. I, it, it seems it's like it's really having the effect of maintaining the social order, maintaining that people who go to elite schools, whether private schools or public schools in wealthy neighborhoods, are seen as coming into school with enough background knowledge that they can have the luxury of doing critical thinking and therefore being prepared for work in the technocracy um, and any kind of thoughtful employment. And the vast majority of the country is seen as coming into school with deficits. Um, and so they're, they don't have, we don't have time know, to give these kids a the real kind of education that we want our kids to have because they just can't read. So we shouldn't find things they want to read about because that would be a waste of our time. We have to point to the letter A until they tell us that they know the letter A, even if it takes seven years. And then you get 14-year-olds who could clearly read. Yeah, I've had so many students finish their first book in my high school English classes because they just needed to find something that they were interested in and be told that they could do it and left alone. And they've whole, since they were seven, they've been pulled out and had A pointed to. So how, how would an anarchist account... <laughs> Do accounting in... Oh, I understand what you're saying now. Um, so I believe that schools should be accountable to students and their parents. Um, so I I give my students um, <clears throat> course evaluations uh, at the end of every quarter, and I've learned more from those course evaluations you than eva they evaluate. They evaluate me okay. and the class. Mm, I love that. Um, I think I, that's so. That's. I think that's more important than us evaluating them. Oh yeah. Way oh more yeah. Important. Because because <laughs> we actually get, have an opportunity to learn, which would then ripple back to them, as opposed to this this status quo system where we learn nothing. And we're continually shoving the same old crap down their throat. And even though the system isn't working and is broken, we don't get any f meaningful feedback so that we can actually perhaps even have some glimmering sense that what we're doing isn't working. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think... Um, and, and I have some background as a community organizer, and I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, the vast majority of community organizers right now are being paid by astroturfing organizations, whether it be universities or, um, you know. NGOs. NGOs, thank you. Um, but actual community organizer at the school which a lot of schools have a community outreach coordinator who could stop 
writing grants for a second and start coordinating with parents and saying, you know, we because there's this big misconception that parents don't care about education, where, in fact, I think that kind of as I alluded to earlier, a lot of parents who went to the same failing schools that their children are at don't believe that the school has their child's best interests at heart. So while they care deeply about education, they're not particularly invested in the school itself. Um, And they know that if we ask them to come, we ask them to come because we want them to listen to what we have to say and maybe tell us how to discipline their child. But if some years were put into really working to prove to parents that we were inviting them into the school to tell us what they wanted their children to learn how to do and what to know. And we were involving them and having parents come in and teach what they know. Parent engagement would go up. Teachers are accountable to parents in places where parents are engaged. So it's pretty obvious to me why not a lot of push is put for parent engagement in certain schools um, because they don't want us to be accountable to the parents. They want us to be accountable to Pearson. Or people in this country in general to be empowered to know that they can engage or and that and that's what, you know, ostensibly back at the beginning of the founding of this country when when the nation was actually founded as a republic, mm-hmm. not a democracy, that, uh, that it would depend upon the engaged participation of informed people. Right. right. And gradually that has eroded and it has eroded most quickly in the last century. And especially in the last 50 years, I'd say, to the point where people now settle for their power of engagement as as merely voting every two and every four years. And that's it. That other than that, they have actually no no other voice other than bitching and moaning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so you know Facebook, right? (laughs) You know, (laughs) Facebook has... Facebook has customers and Facebook has users. Okay, now if you if you go to your email and you sign up for a Facebook account and become a user, you're not becoming a customer of Facebook. You're the product that Facebook sells to its customer, mm-hmm. which is the advertiser or the public relations or the marketing or the intelligence agency or whatever it happens to be. There's a similar attitude towards the school system, which mm-hmm. is that the, the student is the user mm-hmm. and the parent is an inconvenient accessory to the user and the customer is not only Pearson but also the business community yeah. which is uh, a s- kind of an elusive entity that you don't always hear about in public anymore you will see them coming up as a stakeholder mm-hmm. in educational planning documents if you have the time to read through them <laughs> A hundred years ago, it was this this relationship was treated in a much more obvious way. The same relationship was there, but more overt. And you would have documents published in national magazines describing children as the product of 
of a system which was then being consumed by the businesses that were hiring the product. And that's why, the, and the businesses could expect certain things from the schools, like a scientific management which system. Which was what our education system was designed and built for. Right. And it, they didn't hide that. Yeah, of course, most people weren't right. intelligent to understand what was being shoved down their throat, but I also think that they, people felt dependent on that system for survival, so they didn't question it. So, can you continue? I mean, where can we go from there? I mean, what? Because it's all well and good to bitch and moan about what's going on. Where can we go from there? So, I think that that's um, where we're at. I, I mean, I'm in Vermont, and I just passed these beautiful bread and puppet posters on my way in here. So, I'm feeling very... Uh, uh, possibilitarian. Possibilitarian. <laughs> I'm feeling a great resonance with the word possibilitarian. And I think that the possibilitarian um, opportunity here is that so a bunch of schools now have uniforms. And what the uniform is, is a colored polo shirt with a logo on the breast. Well, that's exactly what you're going to wear if you make $10 an hour at almost any job, right? So that's what we're preparing the vast majority of America's students for. Of course, some of them are going to end up in jail. Some of them are going to end up in all kinds of other situations, but many of them are being kind of prepped for these polo shirt jobs. And how ironic and horrifying that those are the people who fail to ascend to that lofty level of... <laughs> of a polo shirt job. Of a $10 an hour polo right. shirt yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you, I've like pretty much never talked to a teenager and had them be like, my life's goal is to work at McDonald's. You know, they're willing to do that. And it's really not a terrible thing to ask a teenager to be a cashier or, you know, some kind. But this is not, that's the kind of thing that used to be mostly for teenagers. The service industry was mostly for people kind of in between things. Um with some exceptions, and now that's a, one of the only options available to a lot of people unless you think completely outside of that box. And um, there are a ton of kids who are interested in entrepreneurship. Um, and entrepreneurship could be seen as very capitalistic, but I don't think it has to. Um, an entrepreneur... Well, literally, an entrepreneur f goes in between and takes something away in between. But the other way of seeing it is that they look around what's missing and how can I fill the void? Or what's needed. What, right. What's needed? What could how I... How can I serve? Well, originally, corporations were supposed to serve the public good, and they were chartered for 20 or 30 years, and then that hmm. their charter would come up for renewal if it was demonstrated that they were serving the public good. Mm. Mm. What happened to that? <laughs> the same thing that happened with everything else in this country. It got... From, a, from the beginning of our nation, there was a battle over um, public banking and commercial. Uh-huh, right. Which was essentially international banking. Right. And it took, it took about 
50 or 70 years, but ultimately it, it took about 140 years for the central bankers of the world sure. <laughs> to take over and, and, and basically buy this country. They essentially bought the country in 1913 once and for all. They had been battling... Are you allowed to say that on the radio? What did I just say? Why didn't we have a centennial <laughs> celebration? It was just 2013. Yeah. Didn't what that didn't he see any parades? Um I think they they're 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 very proud of their achievement <laughs> but they're not they're not so proud or stupid as to parade it in front of everybody. Uh, Getting close though. Getting close. Yeah. So where were we going with that when I said that? <laughs> well, I think so um, and so in this it comes back again to the idea of forced choice. A lot of young people who don't want a polo shirt job are being told to become social workers. And that's a very, no- I mean, at, at any of these things, the people on the ground level generally come into it with their hearts in the right places. Um, the people in accountability and education, they come into it because they want to see the right things done for, you know, poor children and minority children, et cetera. Um, what does minority even mean anymore? Children of color. Um, and people go into social work because they want to help other people. But a lot of what it actually is, is not helping people become their most fulfilled self, but helping people cope with the horrible world that we've given them and like remember to participate in it rather than dropping out entirely and while I see a value in that to some degree I also see so much other value um that that a lot of people who I know going into social work think that they're going into it so that they can help talk people through problems to find solute. I mean, these are people who, one of my friends who's in social work school right now, when she was about 22, had dropped out of college because it was too expensive. And uh, with like her refund check from her last loan she bought a small bus and like learned how to operate diesel engines and drove to Oklahoma and like lived in a bus for a year and a half that taught her things that she couldn't have learned in college you know and when she is working as a social worker she's not going to be able to say to somebody well why don't you take your you know disability check and buy a bus and we'll get you some books on diesel mechanics and just because that's not they're not allowed to think like that. They're not allowed to to share those kinds of possibilities um, or to imagine that anything that arises within themselves has any validity uh-huh, because yeah. our system basically has been filling us with information and aspirations. And those are the only things that are valid. And it's been shoved down our throat as this is the system. And social mm. workers who come in with, with these good intentions, yeah. who really want to help, right. instead of actually finding a way to help people find what's meaningful for them yes. and to find ways through our 
minefield of a system to actually get there, they end up just perpetuating that. They what they do is essentially they they're trained in the application of band aids mm-hmm. onto these gaping wounds, and then placing more band-aids on top of those band-aids and never really getting anywhere. That's it's such an insightful comment that people were fed our aspirations, but people have deeper aspirations. Um, One of the things, you know, I'm not a special educator, but I work with special education students. And when you go to their annual reviews of their individualized education plans, you hear one of the things that the um, case managers are supposed to ask is like, what are your, what are your hopes and dreams? And they're always, they're not always, many of the times they're the same hopes and dreams that are fed to the children on television. Um, I want to have a car. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was oh. just waving to somebody. Oh, um, and and I've talked with a lot of students about their hopes and dreams, and they always start there. But then it's my responsibility as a grown-up to say, okay, well, that sounds interesting. What else? And get to those actual deeper human desires and say, great, so let me help you work towards that. Um, but that's so unusual in our society. Most of the time when when children talk about what they really want or when people, even adults, mm-hmm. say what they really want, people come back, well, well be realistic. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you end up going back to, well, I just want a job. Yeah, right. Oh, like, and so then they, these kids who have already been marginalized and often have bought into the education system more in some ways because they've been told that they like really need the education system there's no way that they could do anything for themselves um they're hearing the adults that they have the best relationships with in the building reiterate that yeah it's totally great that your highest aspiration in life is to have a car right and speaking of all this nonsense this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR <laughs> Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. I'm talking with Iris Kirsch, who just graduated from Goddard's uh, Master's. Sunday. I will graduate on Officially, Sunday. but <laughs> <laughs> in Goddard's um, Master's in Education program, and Leo Zimmerman, who is her husband. Mm-hmm. And we haven't heard much from you. Um, I know what do you, you want to know? <laughs> I know you're, you're just full of fascinating stuff. And we have about 20 minutes left. Um, you've heard this conversation. We can continue in this, in this vein or we could branch off. Um, and obviously we can, we can continue this conversation in the future again, but we could talk a little bit about since okay since you brought up the banking system and apparently you can't we are allowed to talk about that what <laughs> right and i and i just opened up pandora's box there and we didn't really yeah. get into it yeah well so one one thing i've been looking into recently um i'm a researcher i do sometimes research for work sometimes research for learning how the world works 
sometimes they overlap, which is fortunate, but you really can't depend on that, that someone's going to want to pay you to actually find out some real stuff. But so I've been looking into the World Bank and, and education, and I hope to have a lot of data, more data on this in the future. But it is kind of amazing to see the same pattern play out across the world since as we know, the World Bank has quickly worked itself into a place of having a lot of influence and leverage over countries in the third world by virtue of a debt relationship. <coughs> and then they arrogate to themselves the right to restructure that country's economy on the grounds that in order to pay back the debt to the World Bank, it will be necessary for that country to make certain changes to guarantee the appropriate surplus in their budget. And so one of the areas that they have seen fit to, to deal with is education. And in particular, they want an educational system that is going to create the workforce that will be appropriate to the economy that they envision for that country. So I've been going back into the 1960s when they started out working on this and the fact that they partnered with UNESCO. You probably heard about UNESCO, which is the, it's an acronym for United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which I think might have an image of being benign, like Canada. (laughs) 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 But, But no, they work for the World Banking System in this aspect, and they make these precise calculations about vocational training versus general education and how much higher education it, it there is going to be something shocking that comes up very quickly when you start looking into this is that a major motive one major major motivation behind education is population control <laughs> now that's a that's a sweaty topic because we, everybody likes education not everybody likes population control Most people don't really like the idea of the World Bank deciding how many Nigerians there should be. Or how many human beings in general Mm -hmm. there should be allowed to live on this planet. Mm -hmm. But whether you like it or not, they're doing it. Essentially, who gets to play God on this little planet? Right. Yeah. But it is one of those things that's like a forced choice that we've been given bad information about. And so a lot of really well-meaning people believe that there are more people on the planet than the planet can sustain. So they don't want anybody to have to play God, and they certainly don't want to have to do it, but they believe that something must be done and that that something has population control. And they're somehow perfectly willing, as horrific as that all sounds, to put it in the hands of the quote-unquote experts. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and the and the well-meaning gods at the at the top of the food chain. I'll mention one prominent name in that whole population control issue: Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Who uh. most people think worship and think is is the greatest thing since sliced bread <laughs> as if sliced bread was so wonderful <laughs> <laughs> i was just having a conversation with somebody and they brought up bill gates 
as an example, as a shining example. And I said, oh, don't get me going. <laughs> and who does, he, um, who, who does he really work for? Is, right. it, is it a mafia-type organization that made him, by enabling him to take over with Microsoft, gave him all this cash? Um, my dear friend Gage, when we came down to the Occupy Baltimore together, the first sign he made, and he had worked in business for a long time, so he knew. The first, the first sign he made said, CEOs are the bad men. And mm. I've been realizing the truth of that more and more in the years. Bag, B-A-G. Bag men, meaning they get the, the $50 million or the $100 million bonus. But it's not all just for them to have a jet and eat caviar. They also now have to use it. They have to pay it back. Mm. And you're seeing that now with the new generation of technology wealth. Mm. And and reinvesting it in certain things like, for example, and I'll throw this out too because this is an extremely hot, controversial topic and one which will deeply offend many people on the left, and that is Bill Gates' involvement in with the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. corporations with the whole vaccine issue and many of the programs that are being implemented in the third world where they're essentially using people as guinea pigs, literally millions of people all over the world as guinea pigs for these vaccine experiments. And we don't really know what the the overall agenda is. Some of us can suspect that it's deeply connected to the population control issue. But most people on the left believe that this is good for everybody and that any educated person has to believe in, in, the, in the, the value of vaccines because they're going to save people from dying from or being harmed by these diseases that have been essentially manufactured through the media and through the same mechanisms that we've been talking about this entire conversation and also i mean there are really diseases and when were people dying of disease most in europe and america the beginning of industrialization when suddenly a bunch of people lost their land and were pushed into cities so that's what's happening around the world you know um Somebody asked Leo recently, like, well, what would you have Gates do? There's however many thousand people living in Kinshasa um, and there's disease in the water. What would you have them do? And Leo said, well, take a fraction of the money that they're spending on vaccines and buy their land back. Duh. <laughs> you know, but people don't. That's a it's a forced choice. You know, people. Oh, well, the land was redistributed fairly, but whatever. Or it was given to people who would make productive use. Right. Yeah. Of it, i.e. corporation capitalist corporations who we know are tried and true productive entities. And the Congolese owe us that money because we loaned it to them. So now they have to pay it back. And I would go so far as to say that the World Bank not only bails countries out and then sets the terms for how they're going to live up to their obligations, but they they create, they help manufacture the problems that yeah. put them in the situation. Yeah. 
right on. which I think you're well aware of. Yeah. They, create the, they create the problem and then they offer the solution that they want. Right. Yeah. And that's been going on all over the world. And as much as people would like to believe that it can't happen here, in a sense, it's been happening the most here because this has been the greatest target of that campaign of Mm -hmm. control, of ultimate control, because if they can't control this country, then they don't really have control of the world. And and there's something about this this notion of of maintaining the status quo because it works for them Mm -hmm. and they don't want to give up control. Someone referred to the Rust Belt as the ground zero for globalization, and I almost like fell over. Because I never thought of it that way, but it's The true. Rust Belt? Yeah, like Detroit and Pittsburgh oh. were the first places that the corporations came in and built factories that they then moved to Mexico, that they then moved to Indonesia, that they then moved to China, that they then moved to Vietnam. And what was done to Detroit and Pittsburgh and all these other places, Baltimore too, is really not different. It's just that it was the first place and it, it, was, the, it was the test case. Hmm. I, you know, I never thought of it going back that far in a premeditated anticipation of our current outcome. Well, I don't know how premeditated it was, but it got people off their farmland and into the cities and dependent mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. on the system. Well, it, I think it's really easy to, to see how, how capitalism benefits from moving everybody from their individual lives of self-responsibility into an urban industrial culture where everybody serves the corporate good. And 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 of course, this is also done in the Soviet Union and China. Right. That's, it's it's so ironic the the way um, in this country the media and the elites talk about how they're so evil over Mm. there, and yet that's exactly what they're doing here with only window dressing difference. The techniques of power remain constant, essentially. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Since you you brought up the the vaccine issue, I want to just mention one topic, which if you like, we could talk about another time, which I think would be really good fodder for a discussion, which... I think was touched on the first time we talked, which is the Rockefeller Institute and the experiments they did on polio back in the at the turn of the century and in the 1910s, because it is such a clear cut case of uh, iatrogenesis or of a disease coming forth from an experimental situation. And then this was the disease that got the ball rolling on the whole era of vaccination. And then because also it's so clear cut to trace the institutional structure of the Rockefeller Institute to uh, the Rockefellers and also to Johns Hopkins and the funders and so on. So lay that out. Okay. Well, basically they (laughs) basically the Rockefeller Institute was set up by alumni of Johns Hopkins and people who were involved in, in setting that up in the book. America's Secret Establishment by Anthony Sutton, where he talks about Skull and Bones. He shows you how the Skull and Bones establishment created them. Um, Read the book and get into it. But then the Rockefeller Institute, they started doing these monkey 
experiments with polio nominally to create a vaccine, but in the process created a form of polio that was more virulent and destructive than any form that had existed before. And I wish, you know, if I had known we were going to go on the show before I came, I would have prepared all the papers because there's one that came out of Australia in the 30s. I think it's Burnett and Adams, but, you know, I could get the reference. They said, we tested the Rockefeller Institute strain. We concluded decisively that you can be immune to the natural strain of polio and still get the Rockefeller Institute strain. And there was another fellow, Wyatt, who who made a convincing case in, a, in an article 90 or 100 years later that the 1916 New York City polio epidemic, which was in some ways the worst polio epidemic of all time, was due to an outbreak from the Rockefeller Institute. So... What else explains this pattern where polio was an unknown disease in the third world at this time in 1916, where Albert Sabin, the inventor of one of the vaccines, admitted in a paper that he wrote, people in uh, tribal communities in Brazil don't get this disease. They have the polio virus circulating among them, and they never get this paralytic disease as a result of it because they simply have immunity and they pass it on in breast milk. Here comes a civilization that's telling their mothers not to breastfeed their children. It's giving formula milk instead and coming in with now a solution to resolve the problem that 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 created. And then you saw that just like the factories and globalization, it's, it's something else that you see rippling through the world as these institutions move on from one place to another. I've read about a lot of variations on that that same basic story. I mean, that, that's occurring throughout this whole health, healthcare system approach to, to controlling disease, which there's a show I did a year or two ago called Dr. Mary's Monkey, I think it's called. Mm. So that's one that I think you would find very interesting. There's a book I'm not remembering the author's name, but this was an interview of him, and his work, his research is all documented, and it's mind-blowing. It's, it, it's essentially um, how cancer was created hmm. in this country, that the epidemic of cancer was actually created through um, malfeasance and people doing outrageous doing experiments with monkeys and creating these vaccines which then ended up infecting the entire population of first of this country and then essentially the world that that happened with the polio with vaccine it's not even a a secret i mean go what people should look up is simian virus 40 is i don't know if you touched on that in this show I suspect that that was that was in there, yeah. But they were basically they created all these viruses by doing horrible things to monkeys, which I don't even want to describe in detail, and then creating a a cauldron full of virus material, which included the so-called attenuated polio virus material, and it also included this cancer-causing virus called simian virus forty, and this was given out to millions of people. 
and at some point in the process it became known to the authorities and they you know you you could speculate at which point it became known but they kept administering this for a long time and it's transmitted through blood mm-hmm. passed down through intergenerationally horror stories of of american civilization of the quote unquote good intentions of um, of industrialized civilization and now the cancer industry is a huge big business and all of the money is in finding a cure rather than prevention so that a company like Dove can have a really you know feminist face of look we embrace all races and all body types and we love women's bodies but they manufacture antiperspirants they don't manufacture any deodorants that don't contain antiperspirants when like certainly way more than half I don't have the exact figure of breast cancers uh, are in the upper outer quadrant of the breast and there's good research since I was in high school in the 90s linking that the the fact that women are encouraged to shave their underarms and then apply antiperspirant, which seals all the toxins that your body is trying to release through your underarms in right by your lymph nodes. Um, and we're given all kinds of toxins in our food and our medicines and our body care products. And then we're... Our, this very cute, supposedly feminist, supposedly pro-breast cancer research company is allowed to profit off of selling us something that's locking toxins into our bodies. And we're taught by our trusty television sets. Well, you guys are part of a newer generation, but when I was growing up, Television was was the big thing. Everybody was watching television, and there were all these commercials that were basically conditioning people to brush their teeth so they can have white smiles and to use under you know mm-hmm. underarm deodorant so that they smell clean and fresh, and and everything was about being clean and pure. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever mentioned that that it was all extremely toxic yeah. and and health destroying as well as mind-destroying. And today you walk into, I walked into the Home Depot a couple weeks ago, front and center, there's this huge display of Roundup for <laughs> your garden. And there's, I'm, I was looking at this, like, is this real? And there's really not a warning label. It's not a yeah. huge poison flag. And are, and are people in this country really that ignorant of, of what's going on? Well, it, I think it really comes back to the lack of informed consent um, where, I mean, you watch anything, you look at any magazine on any topic, look at any television program on any topic, you will see lawns, manufactured, mowed, manicured lawns. And I had <laughs> I have a friend whose neighbor's baby was getting this terrible rash And then he put the baby on my friend's lawn to play and said, you know, 
he doesn't get the rash when he plays on your lawn. Right. I think it's the chemicals that we're putting on our lawn. But they, he, he talked with his wife, and they decided to keep using the chemicals on their lawn because their lawn looked better than my friend's lawn. And unfortunately, that's we're at the very end of the show. We've actually gone a little over. So, <laughs> no, it's not your fault. It's my fault. I haven't been paying attention. So, thank you so much, both of you, thank Iris you. Kirsch and Leo Zimmerman. Thanks um, for chalk and truth, Tonio. You're welcome. Thank you, and we'll do this again sometime. Good. And thank you all for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>